Hello and welcome to Wilberforce in Conversation. Today I am with Tim Dieppe. Uh, he is the Head of Public Policy at Christian Concern. Tim, it's good to talk to you today. Great, thanks. Do you want to start off by um, letting people know how you came to be involved at Christian Concern and how, to come, how you came to work here? Yeah, sure. So um, I, um, I went into a career in fund management, um, managing global money on the stock markets of the world. Um, and I got involved in ethical fund management um, in that. And um, and for me, um, 9-11 was a sort of worldview shock event. Um, I saw that people had um, done a suicide bombing effectively of and, and killed so many people, such disrespect for human life. And I had heard of suicide bombing before, but I'd already sort of assumed that such people were poor, uneducated, illiterate, easily manipulable people. And this time it was airline pilots who are clearly well-trained, well-educated, well-paid, and yet they were still motivated to act in such a way. What What is this worldview that can motivate people to act like that? So I, after 9-11, I thought, I need to understand Islam a lot better than I do. And I started to read a lot about it and study it and became very concerned about what I found. And in the course of that research, I came across Islamic finance and I thought, well, I work in finance. I probably ought to understand that as well. So I started to investigate that as well. And then I found that um, the then chairman of HSBC's Sharia Advisory Board, um, a chap called Taki Osmani, had written a book in English in which the question is raised do we still need to wage jihad in a country where we can freely build mosques and preach Islam? And his answer to the question is, well, according to the Quran, killings should continue until they um, pay the jizya tax, the subjugation tax. It doesn't That say, was written by, remind us who that was written by? Taki Osmani. Okay, and he's involved in HSBC. He was, he, was, he was on the Sharia advisory board of HSBC. That's quite amazing. He and actually so, said the Quran doesn't say killing should continue until they can freely build mosques and preach Islam. So, so that was your that's what interested you in the particular subjects that you know in on Islam that Christian Concern deals with. So you then came on board. That's right, Christian Concern. Well, I wrote to HSBC, a friend of HSBC, and and they eventually got rid of him. But the point is, this opened my eyes to what this is all about, and and. Later, I got asked to run a Sharia fund, and I thought, gosh, no, I can't do this. I'd be endorsing Sharia law for various reasons, and I refused to do that and reached out for help and ended up connecting with Chris Concern through that. And then a little while later, I, I got involved behind the scenes and then was asked, why don't you come and do this kind of thing full time? So that's in a long-winded way, sorry, Paul, my answer to how that's I fine. ended up here. And uh, since then, you've not only been involved in... Uh, doing Islam work, but also broader public policy, um, responding to things. Yes, I mean, I, I still try and keep a focus on Islam, but I also try and keep on top of various other things as well. Yes. Good. So at the Wilberforce Academy, though, uh, this isn't this isn't a discussion today on Islam, although we could have that at some point. Um, today we're talking about work. Now at Wilberforce Academy, um, you talk to the young people there um, about work. You have a whole session on it. Mm. Why do young Christians in particular need to have a Christian approach to work and Christian understanding of work? Well, 
<clears throat> I think that um, many Christians' perspective on work is impoverished, really. Um, they see work, they, they, they find it difficult to relate their work to their Christian life um, because the preaching and teaching they often get emphasizes evangelism, perhaps, um, maybe emphasizes um, social action and helping people and this sort of thing. And yet, if you're in a job like I was in finance, um, about investing in companies or in a basic manufacturing job making light fixtures or something like that it's difficult for most Christians to relate that to God's plan for their life and how they're serving God in their lives because they haven't got connected that with what God is doing in the world um, and so I think it's very important for Christians to understand how most of their what most of their waking hours will be doing relates to what God wants them to do in the world and this is why I try and teach about this on Wilberforce Academy. So you talk about the um, the secular sacred divide and how that might apply in people's understanding of work. Do you want to explain what you mean by the secular sacred divide and particularly how it applies to... Yes, yeah, so the classic sort of sacred secular divide would emphasise um, passages of scripture that do seem to read this way. For example, Jesus said, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Um, so we can't be, you know, we shouldn't be focusing on money, for example. Um, Paul said we should focus on what is eternal, not what is temporary. Um, so there's a case there um, for this sort of divide as well. And people have a simplistic view of work as, you know, after the fall, Adam and Eve had to work. And work is therefore a uh, something we have to endure as a result of our sin. Work's a curse. It's itself. work is the curse. Yeah. And we we have to sort of do it in order to cope and survive. But that's about as much as it gets. And then, of course, where this goes is that, you know, spiritual properly spiritual Christians will go into Christian ministry, and they're they're much more, you know, spiritual than anybody else. And the super spiritual ones go and become a missionary. And so there's a sort of tiering of people in in the Christian life. And the lowest of the low is people like me who are in finance, basically. Um, serving maybe mammon. Along serving mammon. It, it, maybe along with journalists and, um, and some other well, <laughs> generally disliked you know, professions. So I had to think through all this in my career. I spent 23 years in fund management. And, um, and I think this is a flawed perspective um, that basically disables Christians um, from properly engaging with their workplace. So if we think think back to the Garden of Eden right. before the curse yep. happens, yep. Um, and Adam and Eve are there, and I mean, it doesn't say uh, precisely when the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was eaten, right. but had they not sinned, then right. they still would have been doing work of some kind. Right. Is that right? So they would still have been doing some work, but... Um... Well, here's the thing. Before the fall, um, God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all the things in it. Now, there's a task there, fill the earth and subdue it. That's, that's a task. That's an element of work. And then again before the fall, when you move into chapter 2 of Genesis, it says the Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. 
So look at that, there's work right there before the fall. And what is the first thing we learn about humans? The first thing we learn about humans is they're in the image of God. And what's one of the first things we learn about God? He worked in creation. God is a worker and we're in the image of God and so we're workers as well. And I think this is absolutely key to understanding humanity. We, we are made to work. We need to work. Being a human is to be a worker. We, we need to work to fulfill our full humanity. In a sense, I think unemployment is dehumanising in that way. Do you know what I mean? Because unemployment stops someone from being able to work, which actually we want to work. We need to work and we should be able to work. Obviously, by work, you're not simply meaning employed work, but also it could be... Work example, of all kinds. Work of all kinds. Work in and so when someone housewife work, looking after children work. Yes, all all kinds of work. Voluntary work. If you're, yes. yeah, partic- particularly if you're maybe retired um, from yes. your work, you'd still be active and yes. and trying to actually do things in the world. And so when you get to a position of someone being unemployed and but wanting to work, then it's dehumanising in that sense because that's right. Not only do they need to provide for themselves and for others, but also they. Um, they are not fulfilling in themselves the kind of imaging of God that they are made for. Yes. So, of course, what this leads to is that um, charity, you know, just giving people clothes and, and food or whatever it is that they need, is also, in a sense, dehumanising because people want to be able to work to justify the things that they need and want. So the best form of charity is actually enabling people to work so they can provide for themselves. And again, obviously... There are, there are counter examples of there's just been this hurricane and people need food and shelter or whatever. Yes, but in yes. general, a, a, an approach would be to help people to to work because yes. in, in time, you know, that will help them most of all. Yes, exactly. Yes. Um, so you talk about legitimate and illegitimate Christian work or work that is le- yeah. legitimate and illegitimate for Christians. Where does that line get drawn? Because you know, some might say that in banking, um, there are people who just speculate entirely on with other people's money, and then they go home with great big bankers' bonuses or, or whatever it is. Um, so some people might say those kind of things. Some people might say, well, ob- there might be sex work, for example, um, that obviously is out of bounds for Christians. What are the kind of things we need to be thinking about when deciding what work someone might be called to do? Yeah, so what I think is, what we haven't talked about really, Paul, before we get to this, is that that passage in Genesis about filling up, subduing and all that is, is really the cultural mandate. It's called mm-hmm. the cultural mandate by theologians. And it, and it means that what we have to do as humans is make something of the earth. Make something out of it. And the question is whether that something we make is going to glorify God or not, of course. But we naturally do form culture, whatever we do, we're constantly forming culture, even not doing something as a form of culture making in a sense. So, you know, we're forming culture in the world and that is part of what God wants us to do and how, what it is to be human is to be a culture former or a culture shaper or a culture maker. And all of our work, any type of work we do contributes to culture in some form or other. Now, then we think about legitimate and illegitimate work Clearly, mm-hmm. prostitution is not the kind of work and the kind of culture that God wants us to be engaged in. Anybody's be engaged in, let alone Christians. Yeah. So we shouldn't do that. And we should say, as Christians, we're not going to participate in that or in yeah. pornography um, or in certain other areas as well. 
Um, but I think where it gets more complicated is we're living in an increasingly non-Christian secular culture is thinking about um, direct and indirect participation in the evil in the world. Because the fact is, <clears throat> let's say I work for a printing company and some of their business is pornography. Now, where do I stand? Do I say I can't work for this company because some of what they do is pornography? What if it's only 1% of what they do and I can clearly def you know, desist take myself out of that aspect of the business or not be directly involved in it? Yeah. Well, you know, probably everyone listening to this has bought something from a shop that sells pornographic magazines, right? Yeah. Um, or so, so we are involved unavoidably in a culture that does disregard God and, and do things that we didn't, wouldn't agree with. Yeah, I mean, the, the classic one of the classic th things is churches um, being asked to have um, have antennae on their um, right. on their in their spires and in their roofs yes. that are then used for internet uh, and those kinds of things. And then, so obviously, in some and some of that might be pornography. Well, some of that's going to be. <laughs> see, I wouldn't it, it, say you should do that just because some of it might be pornography. In that case, I think that. The, the culture that enables people to access the internet through their phones things is a good thing. Yeah. But it can be used for bad, but I'm yeah. not responsible for how everyone but uses it. That was just an example to show the unavoidability of yes being entangled in these uh, these ethical decisions. And, exactly. And so, you know, and I think it. there's no clear lines here. You know, 5%, you know, this is the sort of thing we used to decide working in ethical fund management is... Is 5% pornography acceptable? Is it 10% where we'd say no, it's not acceptable? I mean, I think we have to each individually think about that and test it with our consciences and by discussing with other people and so on, the, the difference between direct and indirect participation um, in evil. So a Christian could be faced with a choice of going into a career where um, they earn a lot of money and um, but I have to work very hard, very long hours, and don't have much capacity for for other other work in church and these kind of things. Yeah, um, and might be in a situation where they can then give more away and enable other other work, mm. um, or they might be in a place where they can um, where they can earn an okay living and but have more time to give to directly spiritual sounding things. Yeah, I used air quotes over spiritual sounding. Um, how how does a Christian go about? working out where they fit into that and yeah. what should we be thinking about? Okay, well, I my experience is that um, most of the people in my Christian union at university went into um, caring or social action type of jobs like teaching, nursing, this kind of thing because they could see how that connects with their Christianity, right? Whereas actually... Making a light bulb is culture forming is something that God wants us to do. Making a chair, well, actually Jesus spent most of his career as a carpenter, right? You know, and, yeah. and so let's dignify those things as well. And let's not think that we have to go into caring professions or that they are more spiritual or better than all these. We need Christians in all these areas, in media and finance and banking and whatever else it might be. Um setting aside the illegitimate legitimate areas. But I think that we need that concept of work as culture forming, but also as a form of service. We're serving God directly in our work. This is something God wants people to have light bulbs. God wants people to have chairs. God wants people to be able to save for their pensions um, and, and such like things. We need to be able to relate it directly to something God wants in that sense. 
And then in other ways, we're serving society because society will benefit from these products and these services that our businesses um, or work processes provide. We're serving the employers um, because they're enabled to carry on and make their business successful and work well. We're, we're, then we're also serving our co-workers, our other employees. and Because know, if we um, don't work well, then their jobs might be at stake as well. <laughs> it's not just because the company yeah, may, may suffer. You know, and... we, we should be the best employees in the world because we have this attitude of service. And, you know, I once read a book called um, There's No Such Thing as Business Ethics. And basically the thesis of the book was there's no such thing as business ethics. The, the point is, do unto others as you'd have them do to you, right? And that, that includes your boss mm-hmm. and any employees, and any people you have reporting to you and your peers. And you know, I once said to somebody who was, who was starting to report to me that I'm going to take Jesus' words seriously and that means I treat you as I want to be treated and that means I'm aiming to be the best boss you ever have in your career. Because that's what treating people as you want to be treated means, doesn't it? Right? You know? And that should be the best employee that anybody has as well, because that's what treating people as you want to be treated means. So this is how we should be thinking. And, you know, in fact, Paul says, doesn't it, even of slaves, that they should obey their masters as if they're serving God. Working heartily. Right. Working wholeheartedly. Yeah, enthusiastically, wholeheartedly, doing it. You're not just doing it for people, but you are doing it for people, doing it for God, ultimately. Um and so, you know, that, that's, that's the attitude that we need to ask. And I want to ask people, how do you measure success in the workplace? What, what is the real measure of success? God is much more interested in developing your character than your career, right? But the career might well come from the character as well. The career will ultimately come in some way or other, yeah? But your character is what really matters to God in this, you know? And you'll probably get tested on it. And you'll think it's between your career and your character and actually your character is what really matters and your character is what God will use and can use. That's really helpful. Thank you. You've got four levels of Christian engagement with work Yeah. that you may have picked up from. Did you pick that up from? It's a Do you want to explain what those are and how Christians might think about that? Yeah, sure. So um, level one of this model is to be a Christian in the workplace. All right, so this is, I think this is sort of normal for many Christians. This is, I'm going to be a Christian. I'm going to go there and I won't compromise and I I might try to witness a bit, but I'm going to sort of put up with it because really being a Christian, I can do that better in church and in my family and other places, but I sort of have to put up with being at work as well. Um, So, but I am going to be a Christian and maybe I'll let people know I'm a Christian and I'll try and seek whatever opportunities to witness I have, that sort of thing. This is level one. So a sort of passive faithfulness, like not compromising on a, a big moral issue or anything like that, um, but and, and kind of sort of letting people know in subtle ways that you are a Christian, that kind of thing. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's so that's level one. one. Level two is to be a Christian who applies biblical principles in the workplace. So you now I think, what's the Bible have to say about this kind of work? about work generally is, but also about this particular kind of work. Does it, what does it have to say about finance when I was working in finance? What does it have to say about manufacturing or, or about the particular way in which we engage with our customers or our suppliers or all that sort of thing? And so you're looking to say biblical principles applied in the way that you personally act, but also in the way that the whole business acts. 
So you might say to your managers or your bosses, I think actually we'd do better if we did this in the way we treated our customers or we did that in the way we treated our suppliers or we did this in the way we treat the environment or whatever. Um, because you know that these principles are coming from biblical ideas and biblical ideas and principles are best for what everybody. Um, yeah. And so um, you're actually actively seeking that and actually actively looking for that and seeing how biblical principles apply across the whole lot of what you're doing. So for, to pick up that example and how we communicate with customers, for example, for a business, it, would, it might be um, we're really uh, transparent about exactly what um, what the deal is with this particular product, exactly how much you're you know, going to pay for it, exactly what it does, rather than completely like rather than trying yeah, to treat yeah there's treat no exploitation people, there's um, no exploitation there's no deception involved in the way it's advertised or the way you're treating your customers and and yes you know you're you're providing a good service that's very trustworthy and and right and treats people well so that's number two applying yeah. biblical principles in the workplace yeah. what's what's point three number three is is um to be a christian who works in the fullness and power of the holy spirit so this is jumping ahead of one and two. You're doing both those two things, but you're also looking to rely not just on your own strength, but also on God's strength and God's promptings and leanings and encouragements um, in the way you do it. So you're sensitive to how is what is God leading me to do? And you're praying about your workplace and you're praying about your work colleagues and how you can influence them and look for opportunities in the way in which you interact with them and just working in God's power rather than your own power and trusting God to give you a supernatural ability almost to work in this kind of work, even though it's not directly Christian ministry in the way we think about it, it still is actually ministry, your work. So let's expect God to work through you in the business place, in the office place, in the wherever it is, rather than just on Sunday mornings. And again, that's not just by evangelizing people and invite, you know, inviting them to your church or, or that kind of thing. We should do all that. We should, but, yes. um, but more than that. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then finally, the the, less, the last level in this model is um, to be a Christian committed to total transformation of the workplace. And here, you're not just engaging as an employee who sort of has to keep your own integrity and 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 your own ministry effective, but you're you're looking to transform the whole workplace into something that actually glorifies God. Um, this is going to be a God-glorifying workplace. This is going to be a God-glorifying organisation, maybe even explicitly a Christian organisation. You're looking to transform this whole business, this whole enterprise, whole organisation into something that is explicitly trying to glorify God, and that's the ultimate aim of this. And that's what is best for all organisations, to be glorifying God explicitly if they can. Which obviously was a bit more of a thing many years ago, where... Quite, quite a lot of major institutions and charities and banking groups and food groups and, and all of these kind of things were founded by, well, quite a lot of Quakers, Quakers obviously, um, but certainly on Christian principles and these things were important to the, the founders. That's right. And in many cases, that Christian ethos <laughs> has drifted or has, has gone away over time. Mm. Um, but we should be doing reversing that trend, is what you're saying. Absolutely. And yeah, this never happens by accident, does it? It always happens deliberately, you know, and you're right, you know, but I was hearing the other day that Bernardo's, I mean, somebody, somebody in leadership at Bernardo's is reported to have said that one of the greatest things they've achieved is getting rid of the Christian ethos. 
um, for bananas. That's a very deliberate action. It's a very, very deliberate thing that they've done. And, and if you know the history of Bernardo's and the way it was founded and the, the faith of the people who set it up and all that sort of thing, it's a big deal. And, you know, actually Christians need to be just as deliberate and intentional in getting rid of the secularization, if that's the right way, but more about, you know, actually expressing a Christian aspect to it and, and seeking that and being evangelistic for that in the workplace. So at Christian Legal Centre, we've obviously had a number of cases where people have got into trouble being mm. Christians at work mm. um, for whatever reason. Now, lots of people might think that, um, yeah. that that only happens to people who are being deliberately awkward. People, maybe they're, only, maybe they're the people who are doing level three and four and they've pushed a bit too hard <laughs> in terms of your, your, your model there. Um, you know, if they were just being kind of quiet, biblical Christians, not saying much and keeping their faith at home, it would have been fine for them. What's your take on that? Well, I think that um, there isn't really an option for Christians of just being quiet and keeping your faith at home is one level to that. Um, I, I think if, if people at your workplace don't know you're a Christian, then you need to ask, are you really a Christian? If they're not active, actively Christians in the workplace... There's something wrong, isn't there? I mean, if you're, I always like to say, if your colleagues don't know you're a Christian, well, are you really a Christian? You know, because Christianity is, um, you know, a massive part of who you are, and they obviously don't know you. You know, so so your colleagues should know you're a Christian anyway. You know, that that should be obvious to them. Um, and um, and then you know things will come up, and I think you know ultimately God tests people's character, and that's that's what happens. And undoubtedly, sometimes they are deliberately picking on the Christian. I mean, Joshua Sutcliffe ran the most successful club in the school. It was a Bible study club. And there were people in the school who didn't like that. This is you Joshua know? Sutcliffe, who, um, who was, suspend, was, he, he was, he was suspended and disciplined because of... Um, because of misgendered a pupil. Yeah. I mean, he said, well done, girls, to a bunch of girls. And one of them said, I want to be called a boy. And, and the school astoundingly disciplined him for that. But it's um, in this context. But there of... is a backstory of, you know, there he was running an incredibly successful club, um, Bible club for the kids. And, 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 and I think it's reasonable to expect that people who would attract opposition from that. But what are you going to say that he shouldn't be doing that? I mean, not really. <laughs> I think there's this idea um, amongst a lot of Christians that if we're just living Christian enough, yeah. then it'll all be okay because we'll be so full of grace and truth that no one will hate us and everyone will think that we're really nice. Well, obviously Jesus did something wrong then, didn't he? You know? (laughs) Well, exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, if you look through the Psalms, then that's certainly not the experience um, of the psalmist um, through his life. It's certainly not what we're set up to expect. Um, Even, even the godly Christians. Obviously we don't seek trouble. You know, we're seeking to be the most reliable, hardworking, enthusiastic employees in the world. You know, so we're not looking for trouble. And, you know, that I wouldn't encourage people to go looking for trouble. And, and, and neither do I quite want to say expect it, but I, you know, but I can see what you're saying, Paul. Um, but I do want to say, in some ways, don't be... Don't be surprised, surprised if, it if it does happen, yes. Yeah. So work-life balance is a big question for, for yeah. lots of people. Um, so there may be lots of people... Um, you know, coming into London today, maybe even listening to uh, to this uh, to this recording, or on their commute, 
they have busy lives. They're out of the you know, out of the home environment for twelve hours plus. How are Christians to deal with work-life balance? I think this is very important, and um, I think there's a there are many traps here, aren't there? I mean, you know, I worked in in finance in a high-paced sort of high-pressured type of environment, and people are you know the, the the general conversation around the coffee room was how are you doing are you busy and i'm really yeah i'm really busy and and there was a sense in which people were proud of busyness and if you're busy then you feel important don't you you know i'm i'm so important that i'm busy um is the sort of thing i'm so important that i don't have time for you <laughs> i'm so important you know and and actually busyness is not the measure of success really um, and you know, there's there's a famous story, isn't there, about um, the chief executive of um, was it Bass, who sort of worked nine to five and was very effective as a chief executive. And this idea that you have to work twelve hours to be effective. I mean, I had a formative experience as a you know very early on in my career. I had a boss who was a workaholic, who worked very long hours, who came in at weekends, who dragged the secretaries in on Sundays. And all that expected you, you had to come in on Monday showing you'd demonstrate you'd been doing some work over the weekend. And one Monday morning we turned up and we were told, he's no longer works here, here's your new boss. It was just like that. I mean, you know, and, and the new boss was nine till five and off at five. And on Fridays it was more like 4 p.m. because he liked to go sailing. And um, but he was far more effective, you know. And he 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 got loyalty. He he generated team spirit, and we all worked much harder and much happier under him than we had under the previous boss. And that was a, a real eye opener to me about actually it's not about ours. It's about how effective you are. And you know we do. You know God gave us Sabbath. Yeah. So that so that's coming back to the original point of if God is a worker, yes, He shows us how He worked. In creation, um, in the in Genesis one, the six days of creation, and then day seven <laughs> he rests. If we're modelling ourselves, and resting God. is involves trusting God, because it's saying, okay, God, I'm going to let leave that to you to sort out, and I'm going to trust that it will work out even without me having to work all hours. And you know, there's an element of trust there. There's an element of allowing God to be God, and the harvest might be missed, and and whatever it is, but I'm going to rest. Um, if we trust that God's principles for work and um, and the hard work as well um, during the working, working hours, then that, you know, that also applies to the trusting God's principles of rest and... Mm, mm. and but there's, there's the other side to this as well, Paul, isn't there, which is people who live for the weekend, mm-hmm. right? And, and or live for their hobbies or whatever. And there's something not right about that, isn't there? And I read something recently that said the modern craving for leisure is a direct outcome of the loss of meaning in our labour. And I thought, how true is that? You know, people live for the TV series and for the weekends and whatever else, you know, because they don't see the meaning in their labour. And that's what I'm trying to do in these talks is is get people to see meaning in their labour as well so that they, you know, don't just live for the weekend and don't just live for the party or whatever it is, whatever it might be, that all the good things that are hobbies and whatever, we should have those as well. But there is a balance here, isn't there? And I, I love something that John Paul Garnier said. He was chief executive of Glaxo, Smith, Klein, Beecham. Um, so, you know, he is as successful as it gets, right at the top of his industry, chief executive of a multinational company. Being successful 
means success in everything. If I look for only one dimension of life, you'll be sad when it stops and there's nothing else. And so he could, you know, it's he's like, it's not just one thing. You have to be successful. Let's have a successful marriage, a successful family, successful hobbies, successful church, successful... We have to be successful in all these areas because these things come to an end and work especially comes to an end. And for some people, that's the end of their life and they realise they haven't had a balanced life and that's a problem. And that's where the danger of making work an idol or success an idol comes in, isn't it? Because you're, you're treating that success or that work or that uh, sense, of, sense of status as an important fund manager or, or whatever it is. Um, as your highest goal in life, as your highest, most prized And that's possession. danger, isn't it? There's a danger in all these things that we idolise, that we can idolise our work and make my work the purpose of my life. And even if that work is church ministry, Christian ministry, you can make that into an idol. Or we can make watching binge-watching stuff and on Netflix. Or our hobbies and our families kind of and our spouses and, yes, we can family, our, our possessions, our houses. All these things can be idols, can't they? How how did Jesus and uh, and well, the Apostle Paul how how do those uh, those people as examples um, and their, both in their teaching uh, and in their actual lives how do they model for us what it is to be um, to be a Christian in the marketplace? Well, I think um, I, I, it is just worth pondering again that when God became human, He spent most of His career in a family business. Right, you know that's what he did for most of his career, and you know he's profit making and serving and all, all these kind of things. You know, and and I think we should just spend time pondering that, remembering that, and reflecting on that because yeah, you know, that is you can't dignify manual labour in a bigger way than that. God did it. You can't. No. Right. So that's a big deal for for one thing, and and then. You know, for another thing, actually, a lot of Jesus' teaching came out of that experience of being in the marketplace, being in the workplace. There's parables that are about um, often workplace situations or business situations. Um, and so, you know, he teaches with those illustrations in mind from the workplace and, and relating the workplace directly to spiritual things of one kind or another. And, you know, let's not forget as well, several of Jesus' miracles were financially related catches of fish I mean 153 fish is gonna that's you know you probably sell a fish for denarius that's one day's pay right that's 153 days pay right that's quite a lot of money that that business has just made right um, and you know as well as the temple tax and all these kind of things and Jesus didn't call people in the synagogue he went to their workplace and called them there right yeah so it was all it was all happening in the workplace most of Jesus miracles weren't in the temple, they were outside in the marketplace. They weren't, not even his, um, not even his teaching was in, yeah. you know, most of it. Yeah. He obviously did go to synagogue and teach, teach the teachers there at times, but yeah. um, that's a very different model to what we have now, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah, it in is. In general. And a challenging one, isn't it? Because this is about taking church out into the streets and out on, into workplaces, into offices and that, that kind of thing. None of Jesus' disciples were recruited from the temple or religious establishment. I mean, none of them were. They were all recruited from the workplace, you know. Um, Paul was a Pharisee, but he did also run a business, this tent-making business, and that was profitable enough for him and his team and other needy people from Acts chapter 20. 
right? So, you know, this is a successful business that is able to give out of its surplus that Paul is running there. And only one of 40 miracles and acts occur in a religious setting. So you've got 39 miracles there that are happening in the workplace or in, in the streets or in the marketplace in some form or other. And the church leaders that are called in Acts are often people with proven leadership in the marketplace who continue with marketplace businesses of some kind or other. Dorcas, Lydia, Cornelius, Priscilla, Aquila, um, these kind of people. And so these models of ministry we need to listen to. How, how, do, how do we bring Christian faith into the workplace? You know, what does a pastor do to make sure that the people in, um, in the congregation are doing it out there <laughs> you know is it should pastors go around and kind of try and meet up with people in their workplace is that is that one way of doing yeah, this yeah it's or? a great idea i mean i joined the church a few some years ago and got a phone call can i come and meet with you and come to see your workplace and and uh, you know have lunch with you or something like and that. just and that thought, message of going out that. to yeah to the place it, itself and getting a sense of okay, yeah this is the environment and that just sends a message of hang on Christian, yeah, no, you know, following I, Jesus I think, goes. I think that's good, and I think that what else can we do? Churches should realise that ninety percent of their church members they're spending most of their time in an office or in a workplace or some kind of other, and they need to be able to relate that to their Christian faith. And so we need to teach with that in mind, with illustrations around that kind of thing, and talk about living it out in the workplace. And is there a role for? You know, would it would it be good if more Christians were deliberately mentoring younger Christians in the workplace and and you know helping them think through their careers and their Christian, um, you know how to how to be a minister minister in the workplace? Yes, that, that's Should a great that? great idea. Let's let's more do coaching, it. more let's, mentoring. Yeah, yeah, and and setting up groups or small groups or having people prayer partners who can pray about what's happening in your workplace and you pray for each other's workplaces and that sort of thing um, is is all good stuff to do. And in some larger companies then there are also Christian unions um, in those workplaces themselves so um, in those contexts then people can be involved in those as well. Um, Tim, we're running out of time. What, would you, what resources would you point people towards to think more about um, how to do this practically? Yeah, no, I mean, there are quite a lot of resources out there, actually. I mean, I did find Ed Silvozo's book, Anointed for Business, um, very helpful about this. Um, there's another book called Your Work Matters to God um, by Sherman and Hendricks, I think it is. And um, I've I benefited a lot from that book in my career, and I lent it and gave it to people who all said, wow, that really helped me and changed my thinking on this side. So I, that is a very highly recommended book. Um, and then there are people like LICC, London Institute for Contemporary Christianity, that do a lot of this kind of thinking and teaching um, on this as well. There is a lot about out there. So, yeah, let's make use of it. Great. Thanks very much, Tim. Um, it's been good to talk to you today about this, and I'm sure we'll talk about some other topics in the future. Please do take time to tell us what you think about this you can email us on info at christianconcern.com please do also like us on facebook.com forward slash ccfon please do also sign up to our email list at christianconcern.com forward slash sign up god bless